Hi, welcome to another session of the Potter's Roundtable from Washington Street Studios in Bolivar, West Virginia. In Bolivar, we're surrounded by the Harpers Ferry National Historical Park. I'm Phil Bernberg, and today's topic is reduction firing in a gas kiln. Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. Good morning. Today's, today's topic is reduction firing in a gas kiln, and this is going to be sort of a general description of the procedure, kind of an overview, keeping in mind that there are a, whole, there are a lot of different kinds of gas kilns and gas burners, some of which we'll talk about, but this is meant to be a description of the major steps that occur, that are, that are common to all gas firing, reduction gas firings, um, regardless of the kiln design and the specifics. So on this first slide, let's, let's talk about, these are the major stages that we're gonna talk about. The preparation for the firing, the drying or the slow, whatever you wanna call it, the drying or the slow start, some people call it candling. Um, the, the, then there's, there's more of a, followed by a rapid heat up, reduction, slow temperature rise to the end, and natural con or controlled cooling, because there are different ways you can cool the kiln, and finally the, the, the necessary shutdown procedures. So let's talk about them. Um, first of all, first I want to mention that there are different, the, the basic controls that are available on, on just about any gas kiln, there are a certain number of controls that you have. You can control the gas pressure and the gas flow. We'll talk about the difference between those later. You have primary air inlets to the kiln or to the burners. You have secondary air inlets. And finally, you usually have dampers both active and passive dampers. And before we really get into some of this, I wanted to go over some, some background information and some terminology and principles that relate to gas firing. So let's talk about those a little bit first. First of all, temperature, the terms temperature and heat are not the same thing. Um, heat is a form of energy. Temperature is a measurement basically of how hot something is. And even though that sounds like it's the same, and I'll give you an example, it takes a lot more heat to heat up a large kiln to the same temperature as a small kiln. So the temperature is registering the same, they're equally hot, but it took a lot more energy, a lot more heat to get it, to get them to the same temperature. So the, the, the temperature and heat are not the same. A little bit about heat loss also. As a kiln heats up, this is, this is basically sort of a fundamental principle of thermodynamics. As a kiln heats up, heat is also being lost by the kiln, and the hotter the kiln gets, the faster the heat is being lost. So it's a little like driving a car up a hill, and as you drive up the hill, the hill is getting steeper and steeper and steeper as you go up. And so you can't keep your foot on the gas pedal the same all the way up the hill. To go up, to continue to move up the hill, you have to keep depressing the gas pedal and giving it more and more gas all the time. And this, the same principle applies to, to a kiln. Because as the kiln heats up, it's losing heat faster and faster and faster, the hotter it gets, you have to actually keep adding more heat faster and faster and faster, not just to maintain the same temperature, but especially if you want to keep increasing the temperature. So we have to keep that in mind. We'll talk about that later, especially when it comes to features like stalling a kiln. Okay, another, another principle to think about that's related to that heat loss is efficiency. When you talk about efficiency, what you're really talking about is how much fuel does it take to fire a certain amount of work? This is regardless of the, the design of the kiln or any of the other details. Most kilns, in fact, are very inefficient. Contra even though we talk about the term efficiency, usually only a very small percent, any, somewhere between five and 10% of the heat that you put into a kiln actually is heating up the wear or the work in the kiln. The rest of the heat is essentially being wasted. You're heating up the bricks in the kiln, you're heating up the walls, you're heating up the kiln furniture, which, which are, you need to do that, but they're not, they're not helping you necessarily directly you know, fire the work. You're also having extensive heat losses. There's, there's, there's heat being lost up the chimney, there's heat being lost through the walls of the, of the, of the kiln. So there's a, a, a huge amount of the, the heat, that the energy that you're putting into the kiln is actually wasted. The ideal situation, if you think about it, would be if you could come up with a kiln where when you, when you ran the kiln, the only thing in the kiln that got hot was the work. That would be the ideal situation. So that, in other words, all the energy you were putting into the kiln heated up the work and nothing else. Well, there's, there is one kind of oven that, gets, that closely approaches that, and that's a microwave oven. 
is that basically the oven doesn't heat up, the oven doesn't heat up directly, the, the, even the container ideally doesn't heat up. The problem is it's not practical for large ceramics. It's not practical for large materials. But, but that, that, I, that would be the ideal situation if we could do that with ceramics. Um, another term that's related to this process, that it's in the title, is reduction. Pottery is fired in reduction to bring about chemical reactions between the gases in the kiln and certain chemical elements in the clay and the glazes. The reason why we fire reduction is really to, to achieve certain color changes. There's, there's little or no difference in the way the glazes behave and melt and the way the clay behaves, whether it's in oxidation or reduction, in terms of melting or the clay getting dense. It's the color changes that we're after. So the reduction for, for, for gas firings, the reduction is performed early in the firing before the glaze has melted and before the clay has gotten dense because we want the gases in the kiln to be able to penetrate into the clay and the glazes. So that when you're heating, as you're heating up the kiln, you have a layer of dried powder, the powdered glazes that are on the surface of the clay and the clay itself. And the clay is still porous because whether it's been bisque or not. So the idea is you want the gases from the kiln to be able to penetrate down into that porous layer of powder, the glaze, what will become the glaze, and on down into the clay. And the only way they can do that is if it's early enough before they start melting or getting dense. So it has to be done, it has to be done early in the firing. To put a kiln into reduction, basically to create reducing conditions, essentially what you're doing is you're reducing the amount of air that's being provided so that there isn't enough to completely burn the fuel. And what happens is, when you, with, with a typical fuel like propane or, or natural gas, when the normal combustion products, the products of burning it completely, would be carbon dioxide and water. And, but when you put it into reduction, you're still producing the water vapor, but now you tend to produce carbon monoxide. And that's what you'd like to produce to do the reduction. You'd like to, get, you'd like to produce carbon monoxide. So you reduce the air so that you don't have enough to completely burn the fuel to completely form carbon dioxide with two oxygens. You only form carbon monoxide. A little comment, just a comment about gas burners. Gas burners are rated the size of a gas burner. They're rated according to BTUs per hour at certain pressures for certain gases. A BTU is a unit of heat. It's a, it stands for British thermal unit. And just, it's a measure of heat. So just as an example, one BTU is about equivalent to the heat that you get from a wooden kitchen match. That's about, when you, when you strike and burn a wooden kitchen match, you're generating about one BTU, one British thermal unit. So the burners are rated operating at a certain pressure and, at a cer and depending on the specific fuel, whether it's propane or natural gas, they're rated according to BTUs per hour. How much heat can they produce per hour? And for an example, our new soda kiln that we just recently completed building here at Washington Street Studios, um, we're using two burners that each one is capable of producing 250,000 BTUs per hour at five pounds per square inch pressure of propane. That's the way they're rated. And by the way, we have put out a series of videos that I think they're, they may not all be completely online yet, but, we, but three videos describing our construction process for this kiln, if you're interested. Okay, gas pressure versus flow. The same the way that temperature and heat were not the same, pressure and flow are not the same. It's kind of analogous with the water supply system in your house. You have a certain water pressure, which is the force with which the water comes out of the, the faucet, but you can also vary the, the flow, the amount that's actually coming out, by opening and closing the valve. And so we have the exact same principle or feature applying to gas. The gas has a certain pressure, that is how, much, how, how forcefully it's being pushed through the piping, but we can also open and close the opening and make it larger or smaller with a valve so we can control how much gas is actually coming out. Not, not the push, but the flow, how much is actually coming out. And we'll need to talk about those when we talk about controlling the kiln because, they're, again, they're not the same. There are two main types of burners that when we're talking about gas-fired kilns, and one is, they're called Venturi burners, which are also known as atmospheric burners, and forced air burners. So let's look at a couple of illustrations to see the difference. This is a cross-section of a typical Venturi burner, and it's a Venturi, one of the features of Venturi burner is it creates a little bit of suction and actually draws in some of the air that it needs to burn the gas. And it does that by having this constriction 
this, this neck or this waist, this narrowing part of the, of the burner. When the gas, the gas comes in here, this is the gas inlet. When the gas comes in here and, and is under high pressure and travels along the burner, when it reaches this narrower part of the burner, it actually has to speed up to get through it. And when it does speed up, it actually creates a little bit of suction, a little bit of reduced air pressure around it. And what that does is, so it's creating a little bit of suction right here, that tends to draw in air back here. Because the back of the burner right here, you can't see it, but there are openings through this wall, this back wall. It, it, it creates enough suction that it can actually draw in air through the back wall. This is a disc that can be spun on, this is threaded, so you can, you can turn that and you can close that, open and close this gap, this air gap in here. This is what's considered to be primary air. That is air that's mixed directly with the fuel initially. That's considered primary air. If the air is mixed with the fuel later, after it exits the burner, that's considered secondary air. Okay, so this is, this, is the, this is the, basically, so there are no really moving parts on this burner. They're basically just the, the, the gas is injected in and then it draws air in through the back and, the, and the, the flame exits that side. Okay, now the next one, this is a cross section of one kind or typical a forced air burner. And in a forced air burner, basically you have a fan or a blower that's supplying the air. The burner is not capable of drawing in its own air. There's no, vent, there's no constriction or venturi in the burner, so it's, it doesn't draw in its own air. You have a, a blower or fan that pushes air into the burner. So in this case, I have a blower on the back, I have gas coming in, and I have, and, I, and then and the gas and the air mix, and then when they reach the end, then the, there's a flame that, that comes out the end of the burner. And there are really two different types of forced air burners, two sort of subcategories. In one case, and this is the same as the previous one, in one case I have a fan that's blowing air in and I have gas that's coming in and then the gas and the air mix and then they exit the burner. In the second kind, the gas and the air mix actually before they get into the blower. So in this case I have a gas line coming in and I have air inlet right here and the gas and the air are going into the blower and then exiting. So it just really, it's the same idea, I'm mixing the gas, I'm providing all the air that I need to burn by means of the fan, but in this case, they're mixing after the, the blower, and in this case, they're mixing in the blower. Okay, so let's, let's talk about um, sort of, a, let's go over sort of the general, the general stages in a fire and the general proceed. By the way, I wanted to just mention these last two, I can't, I don't remember frankly where I, where I got those first two illustrations. These last two illustrations were from a book by Daniel Rhodes that was published in 1968 called Kilns, Design, Construction, and Operation. And if you can get a hold of it, it's a really good book on kiln design and construction. I really rec I recommend it. Okay, so let's talk about sort of the general procedure or the, the stages in a firing. The description that we're gonna be talking about is, is really meant primarily for venturi burners, the atmospheric burners, and burning using propane. The actual operations for forced air burners may be slightly different. We'll talk about those at the end. And again, they, they may be, the conditions may be slightly different if you're using natural gas versus propane. But the point here is the basic steps in the process and the, the principles of the procedures that you're trying to follow are the same, regardless of the fuel and regardless of the details of how you actually achieve them. So the first step really is preparation. And one of, the things, one of the first things you do before you even do the firing is what I like to do is I wanna set the gas pressure that I'm gonna use for the burners. And if I, especially if I haven't used these burners before or I haven't used them for a while, every single burner has sort of an optimum pressure range that it's designed to operate at. There's a, there's a range, it might be for instance like five to 20 pounds or five to 30 PSI that that burner is designed to use for. So what I like to do when I operate a kiln is I want to, one of the principles that I found is really useful is I want to reduce the number of things that I have to change during a firing to a minimum. I don't want to have 10 different things that I have to keep constantly adjusting. I'd go crazy and you'd never be able to do it successfully. So I want to reduce it to a minimum number of controls or control knobs, if you want to say that, on the, on the panel that I, that I have to pay attention to. So what I do to start is I'll take the burner before the firing and I'll adjust the primary air on the burner to give me the best possible combustion conditions. And I can do that by either, before I even load the kiln, I can leave the door open and look in the kiln, I'll light the burner and I can adjust the air so that I'm getting the best, the most efficient burning that I can, 
Or if, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm able to do it, I'll actually remove the burner from the kiln. I did this recently on our, on our new soda kiln, and I'll hold the burner in my hand and light the burner, and then I'll adjust the air on it. And what I'm doing is I'm looking for the most efficient combustion. And you know, for instance, so when I close down the air all the way, I tend to get a long yellow flame, kind of a, a, a wavering, because I'm not getting enough air to completely burn the fuel. And as I open up the flame, the flame burns hotter and it gets shorter and shorter and shorter because I'm providing more and more air for, to mix with the gas to burn it. And I'll finally get to a point where when I increase the air more, nothing more happens. I'm not, when I open it up, I'm not providing really any more air. I've, I've got the, the, the maximum amount of air coming in for that gas, and I'll leave it at that. And so that's sort of pre-setting the burner, and I found that's really useful. I might have to change it later on in the, in the, in during the firing, which I'll mention later on, but in most cases, I don't. If I set that optimum condition, I can, I can keep that, the primary air. One of the nice features that I found about um, atmospheric burners is they don't provide all the air that you need to completely burn the gas. So if, even if when I set this burner at the optimum, optimum primary air initially, I'm still gonna need additional air to get an oxidizing condition, which means that if I have no additional air, I'm automatically getting a mildly reducing condition, which is great in, for, for, for a normal reduction firing. If you'd like to see a video version of this presentation, just head out to YouTube and search for Washington Street Studios. So I'll set the initial gas pressure and I'll adjust the primary air to give me the, to give me the best firing conditions. Okay, so now I'm ready to fire. So that was sort of the preparation of the pre-firing stage. The next thing is really is the, early, is the first part of the firing. And it, it's, given, it's been given a lot of different names. Traditionally, it's called candling. We'll talk about that later, but really, to me, in a lot of cases, candling is not necessary. There's a reason for doing a slow heat up at the beginning of a firing, but you need to have a reason. Like, what's the reason? Is it because you have wet pots or you have wet glazes or the bricks in the kiln are wet, so you wanna, you wanna take precautions? It's, in some cases, it, it's not necessary to do a long preheat. For instance, in our new soda kiln, we just did a test firing. Well, I knew the bricks were dry. We had some pots in there, but with the, we knew the pots were dry. So we didn't do, as you'll see later on, I'll show you the curve that we generated, the plot of the temperatures. We didn't need to do a slow heat up. So basically, we fired it up as fast as we could, and we, have no, we had no problems with it. There was no reason. So candling or preheating is not something that you need to do sort of as a habit. Think about if you need to do it, why you need to do it, and then, and then therefore, what are you doing it for? Is it, if you have wet bricks, maybe you need to do it longer, or you have wet pots. It's not something that you just pick a standard candling and do it. Usually, that, usually that, that's just wasteful. It's wasteful of time and gas. So for the drying part of this early part, if I am going to do it, I wanna keep the burners on very low, I want because I wanna bring up the temperature slowly, especially if I'm actually worried about wet pots or wet bricks. And I want the dampers to be open because I want oxidizing conditions. In this early part of the firing, in addition to driving off any water, I wanna burn off any materials that, let's say even any organic materials. Let's say, for instance, on my pots, I might have wax, I might have put wax resist on the pots. I wanna burn that wax off, so I want oxidizing conditions. This, at this very low temperatures, reduction wouldn't accomplish anything. So I, want, I purposely want oxidation. So I want, I want the burners on low, and I want, I want uh, as much air as I can get. I want the dampers open. So then I usually go into, then after that, once I'm satisfied, if I've been doing this to dry out the kiln or dry out the pots, and, uh, and, and again, we'll talk about the idea of, of single firing. That's a variation on the firing, which we're not going to include it. So let's assume that we're firing bit, old bisque work at this point. So if, once I've done this initial drying stage, I want to go basically into a rapid heat. I want, to get, I want to get the pots as hot as fast as I can up to the point where I am going to go into reduction. So I increase the gas flow. I, I open the valve to increase the gas flow to generate more heat. I, I still have the dampers fairly wide open because Again, I'm, I want, I want the, the most efficient combustion. One of the features that you, we'll talk about later on, when I go into reduction, because I'm not burning the fuel as efficiently, I'm not producing as much heat. So if I want to get a, a, a rapid temperature rise, 
then I, that means I want to burn the fuel as efficiently as I can, which means I need as much air as, as, I, as I can. So in this case, at this stage, I'm looking for, I want a steady rise in temperature and I want oxidizing conditions because I'm still trying to burn off any organics, any materials that might be impurities in the glazes, impurities in the clay. Okay, so finally I get to the point as the temperature is heating up, where now I'm, getting, I'm approaching the point where I want to go in reduction. Typically for reduction firing, you start the reduction at around anywhere between cone 012, or some people go as high as 08. It really depends on the glazes and the clays and the, time, the kind of effects you're trying to achieve. I found, for example, in our kilns here, that I can't get the development of good red coloration in copper red glazes unless I start reduction as early as cone 012. So when I'm, I'm, and I've, so I'm looking at my cones in the kiln during this, the, the rapid heat up stage. When I get to the, the, the 0-12 period, I'm gonna start to put the kiln in reduction. And what that means is I'm gonna, re, I'm gonna close the dampers down because as we, we've talked about a little bit, I think in, in kiln construction, some of our other videos, that what the dampers are doing, the dampers are restricting the draft that's being created by the chimney. And it's that pull from the chimney that's pulling in the additional air around the burner. The burner is sitting facing the burner port or an opening in the kiln. And there's a, there's a space around it where additional air can come in. And it's the draft of the chimney that's pulling that extra air in around, around the outside of the burners that's mixing with the flame and helping to do the combustion. And I need, that, I need that extra air to get complete combustion so that if I close the dampers down and reduce that, the draft and reduce the pull of the chimney, I'm not pulling in as much secondary air, which means I'm not getting enough air to completely burn the fuel. That's what I want. I want to create reducing conditions. And so what I'll do is I'll close the dampers down. I still want, I, I don't want the temperature, ideally, I don't want the temperature to drop because when I know when I go into reduction, I'm getting less efficient burning. So this is where I've got, with practice, you need to achieve sort of a balance between getting reduction and still getting enough burning so that the temperature doesn't start to drop but enough reduction that I'm producing the reducing conditions I want. So typically what I'll do is I'll, I'll push the dampers in and I'll open some of the other openings in the kiln to look like I'll open the peepholes where, I've been, where maybe I'd be looking for the cones and I'll see whether I get back pressure. That's what I'm looking for. I wanna get enough, I wanna block the dampers enough so that the force of the flame coming in from the burners can't get out the chimney as easily as it wants to, and it starts pushing out any other openings that I can find. So if I can, if I can close the dampers down, and then I open a peephole, and I start to getting a flame, a yellow flame, coming out the peephole, that's a good sign, because that means that it's yellow because there's not enough air in the kiln to completely burn it. I'm not getting, I'm getting this, car, this, this carbon flame, and it, the fact that it's coming out, pushing out of the peephole, means that the chimney is not sucking the air in, the chimney is, the, the dampers are blocking it and it's pushing it back out. That's what I want. That means that I've got enough pressure where I've reduced the back pressure, I've reduced the draft. And the other thing I look for, in addition to that back pressure and those yellow flames, is I'm looking for sort of a hazy atmosphere in the kiln. When the kiln goes into reduction and you look in the peepholes, it's no longer, even though it's bright, it's no longer clear in there. It tends to be hazy and you can't see very far into the kiln. And that's a good indication also of reduction. So I'm, this is a case where with practice, you need to, to, you need to learn for your kiln how much, how much, at what damper setting do you need to create this back pressure and get these reducing conditions without burning the fuel so inefficiently that the, the temperature starts to plummet. Because remember, the hot kiln is losing heat all the time. And when you're getting up to around 012, in, the, in that range 012 to 08, you're losing heat pretty fast. So I still have to be generating some heat to keep it at, at least keep it at that temperature. But, uh, but I wanna generate the least amount I need to keep it there so that I can have the reduction. And typically what we do here and what I've done in, in previous kilns, I'll keep it under reduction for at least an hour. And I might be longer, depending on the glazes and how tightly loaded the kiln is. This depends, this is something you really need to work out for your own kiln. The, the type of wear, the types of glazes, the flame path. But an hour is not a bad start, at least to, 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 to put it under reduction. So then at the end of reduction, 
Now I want to go out of reduction and I want to heat it up and basically I'm shooting for the end of the firing. At this point, I'm just trying to get to the final temperature of the firing. So after, after the heavy reduction for the glazes and the, and the clay, I open the dampers up again and, I, and I want to get a, I'm trying to get a steady heat rise at this point. I don't want to go into oxidation because I don't want to undo all the effects of the, of the reduction period I just did on my clay and my, gla and, my, and my glazes. But I want to get, so I keep it in sort of a mild or medium reduction, but enough now that I can get, I'm burning the fuel more efficiently and I can get a steady heat rise. So I typically I'll increase the gas flow and at some point I might find that, again, keeping in mind, I'm losing heat faster and faster and faster, so I'm running up this hill that's getting steeper and steeper. At some point, I might turn to the point where I open the gas valve and the gas valve is wide open. And I can't, so at that point, I, may, I might need to increase the gas pressure. So I might have to go back to my secondary regulator and open it up a little bit more to give me a little more gas pressure, a little more push. So I can close the valve down, back down a little bit, increase the gas pressure, and then start to adjust the flow valve again to get more flow. And I might even at this point, again, if, I, if I'm increasing the gas flow a lot, I might actually have to open the primary air a little bit more. Because I'm, again, I'm trying to get I'm trying to keep reduction, but I still have to get enough burning so that the temperature will rise. I can't, it can't be that inefficient, otherwise my temperature won't rise. So I might actually, if I can't, if I can't, if it still seems like I've turned up the gas and the temperature is still not rising, then you have to think about maybe I have to increase the primary air. Somehow I have to get enough air to burn that additional gas. So I, I, so I keep doing this, and I keep watching and trying to get, I'm looking for the kiln to reach the final temperature, let's say cone 10. And um, at some point, when I get close to the end, what, there's a stage that some people do in their firing, and it's called clearing. I like to maintain a, a mild reduction or a moderate reduction all the way up to the end of the firing. But some people do what's called a clearing operation, which means at the end of the firing, they purposely put it into oxidation and the idea is to sort of brighten some of the glazes. Depending on how heavy the reduction has been on the way up to the final temperature, you might, it's possible to even produce a little soot. So depending on how carefully you can control your kiln or how efficiently your burners are operating. So some people will actually put it into a little period of maybe a half an hour or so of oxidation at the end. And the idea is to brighten the glazes. If you have, if the glazes have gotten a little dull because of some soot accumulation or something like that, this will cle it clears the kiln and brightens the glazes. It isn't always necessary. It's the kind of thing where you need to find out whether you need to do that with your particular kiln or your particular burners. And, some, and I've done it on some glazes where with and without it, and I didn't see a difference. So it really, it, it's not something, again, that you need to do automatically. It's something to consider depending on how your, your kiln fires. Okay, so let's say now I get it, I've, I've reached the final temperature, and essentially the firing is over. So now I can think about how the kiln is going to cool. And the cooling can actually can have a big effect on glazes, especially the slower the glazes cool down, the more likely you, you are to get some crystallization and some other sort of mottling and variation effects. The, so I, so the, there's, there's a big advantage in a lot of cases to the allowing the glazes to cool down more slowly, but not, but not always. So you can, you can have just natural cooling where you just, you just turn the kiln off, you seal up the openings, which we'll talk about in a minute, and you just let the, cool down, the kiln cool down at whatever rate it naturally wants to cool down. Because again, it's losing heat a lot. It's losing heat quickly. The other thing is, I could do some kind of a controlled cool down. I could do one of the types is called reduction cooling, where I purposely, this, and so assuming, this is assuming I haven't done a clearing operation, I want to keep fairly moderate or fairly heavy reduction on the glazes so that I get no reoxidation during cooling. So I can actually turn the gas down, reduce the air a lot, so that the temperature, I'm, I'm still producing some burning but I'm, I'm, I'm not burning it efficiently, so I'm purposely creating reduction conditions and allowing the temperature to drop somewhat, maybe four or 500 degrees um, at least, and keeping the kiln in heavy reduction. Another approach that sometimes people do, again, for specific glazes, is called crash cooling. They don't want the glaze to cool down slowly. They sort of want to freeze the glazes at the particular effect they've achieved at the high temperature. And you can do this by turning off the gas, and they open up, 
open up some openings on the kennel, like maybe open up some of the, the, the view ports or pull the burners back so you get more air in through the, through the burner ports. And it chills the glazes and they cool down. And all I'm really looking for is the first few hundred degrees, maybe 500 degrees. So I'll cool it down quickly and then I'll close it up. So I've, I've, I've stopped really any further crystallization. And finally, another technique that people do is called firing down. And that's to really extend most, most kilns that are built with hard or dense fire bricks tend to cool down fairly slowly. Insulating fire bricks cool down faster and fiber kilns cool down really fast. But so I might have a kiln where, let's say I have a fiber kiln and when I, if I turn it off, it's gonna cool down very quickly and I'm not gonna get a lot of those nice crystallization effects. So one thing I can do is a procedure called firing down where I reduce, when I've reached the final temperature, I turn the gas down a little bit so I'm still putting some heat into the kiln, but not enough to maintain the full temperature. So that the temperature will start to slowly drop. And then I'll turn down the gas a little bit more and allow the temperature to, to drop a little bit more. So I'm, I'm, I'm easing the temperature down at a slower rate than it would if I just turned the gas off altogether. And so that's extending the cooling period and I can get more crystallization effects. Especially in kilns that are either um, with fiber kilns or even insulating fire bricks, because they don't tend to hold the heat very efficiently. Thanks for watching this video. Please like, subscribe, and share it with your friends. And consider becoming a patron of our channel. Visit www.patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable. Any amount you give will support the creation of a digital library of educational videos and podcasts to support artists, potters, and educators now and into the future. If you would like more information about our membership studio, classes, events, and multimedia productions at Washington Street Studios, visit our website at www.hfclay.com. So finally now shut down when I've, at, 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 at one point when I've decided the firing is over, I wanna seal all the kiln openings because I don't want, as the kiln is cooling down at this point, I don't want air streaming into the kiln, hitting hot pots and taking the chance of a, possibly even, even cracking the pots or at least reoxidizing the glazes. So I'll close the dampers all the way. I'll close up the burner ports. In a lot of cases, with like, which, if, which I can, I'd like to move the burners slightly away from the burner port and slide like a piece of kiln shelf or something that'll completely block the burner port. Um, I'll also, I'll bleed the gas line. I think it's a good general safety procedure, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but when you turn off the gas, I don't turn it off at the kiln. I go back to the source, I go back to the gas tank and turn it off at the gas tank and allow the, pre that shuts off the gas, and then the, ex the, the remaining gas in the gas line bleeds out through the burners. It only takes a couple of seconds, but it burns down, so I'm not leaving high pressure gas in the gas lines. And then I go back and close all the valves. And so, if, and one of the things, well, the other, if you have passive dampers on the chimneys, I found this is a good point to open the passive dampers because remember, the chimney is still hot. And even though the burners are not lit, the chimney is gonna to wanna to create a draft or a draw on the wear chamber. So I'll open the passive dampers so that um, I can, so that I'll cut down the draw, which means it's less likely to pull cold air into the wear chamber. And finally, you might even, if necessary, I'll, I'll cover up the chimney if, if that's necessary, Let's say, especially if there's a storm coming or something like that. Okay, so there are two, I mentioned there are two special, two sort of special firing procedures that you could sort of superimpose on top of this general procedure. And one is carbon trapping. When you're going into reduction, you don't want to produce a lot of soot because soot does not accomplish reduction. It's the carbon monoxide that accomplishes reduction. So if you're producing a lot of soot, yeah, and you can see that where the flame is exiting the, the kiln or when you, if, if you pull out a peephole plug and you look on the backside of the plug and you see a lot of soot being formed, you don't wanna produce a lot of soot. So, um, but there's a situation where you do, and that is for, for what are called carbon trapping chino, carbon trap chinos, where you purposely do wanna produce a lot of soot. And, it, and you do this during the reduction period when the glaze is, is, is a layer of powder and the clay is porous, 
and you produce this extremely fine soot. It's the kind of soot you get that you get from a candle, for instance. If you ever had a candle and you have a chimney, a glass chimney around it, that extremely fine black soot from incomplete burning, that can actually penetrate into the, clay, into the layer of powdered glaze and into the clay and produce this black coloration known as carbon trapping. So that's the only situation where I, I actually, it's advantageous to produce soot. And I produce the soot by actually reducing the primary air. In that case, I actually, I've, remember I've preset the burner to give me nice efficient burning, and now when I reach the, the reduction conditions, if I wanna make carbon trapping, I actually have to cut the primary air down to produce that sooty yellow flame again to generate the soot that I want. But if you're, seeing a, if you're not doing carbon trapping and you're seeing a lot of soot, you're going into over-reduction. You're wasting gas and you're really not getting as, as good reduction as you, as you would like. The second sort of mod main modification of this whole procedure is single firing. Is that if you're, if you're not firing bisque work, if you're firing greenware, then you basically you have to include a, a bisque firing cycle on the early portion of your firing. So instead, I mentioned earlier that if I'm firing dry work and my glazes are dry and my bricks are dry, I'm gonna heat it up pretty quickly. But if I'm buying bisque, I have, to, I have to insert a bisque firing segment there. So this is going to be a long, slow preheat. And I have to do the same thing that I would do, the same idea as if I was firing an electric kiln. I have to keep the temperature cool enough, below 200, 212 degrees, long enough to dry out the pots so that I don't blow them up. And then when I get up to the red hot stage where the, where the chemical water is being driven from the clay, I have to still go moderately slowly or I can still blow up the pots because I'm driving the chemical water out of the clay. So I have to add this whole very slow bisque-like segment at the beginning of the firing if I'm doing single firing. So I have to do a really long, slow uh, preheat. Okay, one, one, a couple of comments here on forced. Now I mentioned earlier that the, the comments that I was making about the air and the, uh, and the burner really pertain to Venturi burners. With a forced air burner, the sequence is the same, but there are slightly different controls. And as I mentioned earlier, there's only primary air. There is essentially no secondary air with a forced air burner. All the air that you need to burn the fuel is controlled by the air inlets on the fan or the fan speed. In some cases, on some of the more primitive units I've seen or some homemade burners, you only have a single, single speed fan, but you have adjustable air openings on the fan so that you can control the amount of air. So in other cases, you might have a variable speed fan and variable air openings that you can control. So you can go all the way from basically no air coming into the, 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 the burner to complete air enough to give you, you know, complete oxidation conditions. So there, so all your air, there, there are, so you're, not, so you're not really worried about producing secondary air. For forced air burners then, the dampers are not needed to create a draft because you're not, you're not trying, you don't need the draft to pull in secondary air. But the, the, damp, the dampers are used to return, to retain the flame in the kiln. One of the, one of the things that can happen, and we'll talk about it in a minute here, one of the things that can happen with, with reduction firings is if the draft on the, the chimney is too great, you can actually be pulling the flame out of the kiln too quickly and not getting all the heat out of it that you'd like. Because the longer you can keep the flame in the kiln, the more heat you're gonna extract from it. Ideally, it would be great if somehow you could have the flame go around and around and around in the kiln until it was almost room temperature and then come out of the kiln. It means you would have extracted all the usable heat from it. Well, that isn't really practical, but, but you'd like to keep it in there at least as long as possible. So with a forced air burner, that one of the dampers can do is to create a little back, back pressure and slow down the flame at least so that it tends not to just rush out of the kiln. Okay, so here are some possible problems that you run into. And if, and if you fired a gas kiln before, as you know, the list of possible problems is almost endless, but we're gonna run into just, we're gonna talk about just a few of them here. One of the things, one of the comments I wanted to make is I found, I know when I was, when I was learning how to fire a gas kiln, is when I run into a problem during the firing, is think your way through it. Think about the principles, how the kiln is operating, what, what's going on in the, in the, in the burner and the combustion, and you can almost do it by, I found, by a process of elimination. And you can say, okay, let me try, let me try one, one thing to see if that fixes it. And the one thing I really like about 
some of these longer firings is the fact that you can make a change in the firing. And if it's just a small change, you're not going to mess up the whole firing. So you can make a change, see whether it improves the, or improves the condition or solves the problem. And if not, put it back where it was and then try something else. And at the most, maybe you've lost 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes of firing time. And then you can try something else. So you can sort of think while you're in the learning process, you can think your way through what could be, the, what could be wrong and what are the possible solutions. So one of the really common features that people see in, in gas and wood firings, by the way, is stalling. And this is where the, the, the temperature seems to get up to a certain point and you just, no matter what you do, it doesn't, the temperature doesn't want to go up. This, but the thing is, this is not an accident. This is a natural occurrence because, as I mentioned, the, as the kiln gets hotter, it's losing heat faster and faster and faster. And it finally gets to the point where, for the rate at which you're putting heat into the kiln, it's losing heat so fast that it's not going to go up. And it actually might start to drop. So the answer is, the obvious answer is, I need to put more heat into the kiln. The heat is being lost so fast that, that the, the heat loss is winning, basically. So the answer is, what do I need to do to, to produce more heat? Well, I might, maybe I need to just simply turn up the gas. Maybe I need to increase the secondary air with the same gas to get more efficient burning. So, and maybe I even need, if I've turned up the gas, maybe I even need to turn up the primary air. But the, the, the bottom line is, I need, somehow I need to burn more gas faster. Whatever that means, whether it means more secondary air, more primary air, more gas, I need to, I need to, I need to burn more gas. And that's the solution. The, the, the stalling will naturally happen because, as I say, the heat losses are starting to exceed the rate at which you're putting heat in. So it's a simple solution. You, somehow you've got to increase the heat. Another, another problem that people run into is they get poor reduction. The problem with this is, a lot of times, you, can only, you only know that after the firing is all done. You look at the glaze and think, oh, you know, I really got some, some nice yellow celadons here. Um, so a lot of times you can't always tell during the firing, but the key to the good reduction is, as I mentioned, is working out the proper gas-air balance. And this, this maybe comes with practice for your particular burner and your particular kilns, is getting just the right burn at the balance between maintaining reduction and still generating enough heat so the temperature continues to climb. Along with, with poor, you, there, and there's another source of poor reduction. You might actually be getting poor reduction during the firing, but you can also get reoxidation during the cool down because of leakage. If a lot of air, especially when you first shut off the kiln, depending on the design of the kiln and the location of the ports and the work and so forth, it's possible to suck in that cold air gets drawn into the kiln and, it's, and it can, it can depending on, again, the type of opening, it might actually hit a particular pot or a few pots and reoxidize them um, during the cool down. So this is, another, this is something that'd be, it's hard sometimes to tell the difference between poor reduction during the firing and leakage at the end, but you can usually tell or get a clue as to the location. Where are the, the oxidized pots located? And for instance, is the, oxidi is the oxidized side facing, for instance, a, a gap in the bricks or something like that? Or is it uniformly um, oxidized and it's in a back part of the kiln where it's very unlikely that leaking air could reach it? Faulty kiln design. This is, and this people, sometimes, especially if it's a kiln that you haven't fired before or you're not familiar with, a lot of, a lot of kilns, since most, a lot of gas kilns that not commercially produced ones that are homemade or home designed and built, basically may not be designed in, in the optimum way. And so they may have some defect built into them. And the problem with that is you really can't overcome it very easily during a firing. One of the common faults I've seen is having the, the exit flue openings, the openings to the chimney between the wear chamber and the chimney, lot, not large enough. So the kiln is basically being choked. The flame can't get out of it easily enough, which means that I can't get rapid enough burning, and so I, it's very difficult to get a, 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 a temperature rise, especially at high temperatures where I need to be burning a lot of fuel pushing a lot of gas through the kiln to generate a heat, if that opening is small, they can't, you create back pressure and it's, it can't get into the chimney. So the kiln is basically choking itself. And this, unfortunately, the only time you find that out is when you fire the kiln and you've tried all these other remedies and nothing works. 
Then it's time to look at the kiln design and say, okay, is there something inherent in the kiln design that, that I need to correct? Another situation could be, for instance, the chimney is too short. If the chimney is too short, then I don't create enough draft, which means that I'm not pulling in enough secondary air, which means that, again, I can't burn, I can only burn so much gas. If the air is limited, then I can keep putting gas in and it simply won't get burned and I won't generate heat. So if you get to the point where you, and, I, and I've run into this at schools and some, some community studios and places where somebody has built a kiln in the past and I'm not familiar with it and I'll go to fire it and all the remedies I try during the firing don't work. At the end of the firing, then I have to look at the kiln design and say, okay, is there something in, inherently in the structure of the kiln that's causing these problems? Uneven temperatures, and this is a fairly common thing with kilns, this can vary a lot depending on the design of the kiln, the location of the burners, the size of the burners, and a whole lot of other things. But that one of the, if, if it's possible, if it's not a basic design fault, one of, the, one of the possible ways to approach it is, if you notice during the firing that you're starting to get cones in different parts of the kilns that you can see that are getting to be several cones apart, like seven in one part and 10 in another part, that's, that's, you should, I, ideally, if, you keep, if you're firing the kiln, you should do something before it gets that, that drastic. But one of the things you can do is, is go back into a heavier reduction, choke the kiln down a little bit, close the dampers down. You'll actually slow down the temperature rise, but you'll give the temperatures a chance to even out more. So I've done that sometimes where as, I, as I'm starting to heat up, I notice that the kiln, the cones in, the, in two different parts of the kiln, let's say the top and the bottom, are starting to drift apart. So instead of trying to get the most rapid temperature rise that I can, I'll go back into a period of, of little reduction. I'll slow down the rise, but I'll allow the cooler part to sort of catch up a little bit. And then I'll open it up again, and if I start to see it drifting apart, I'll close it down a little bit again. And that, that, that's usually pretty effective. Okay, some possible mistakes you can make during the firing. Well, one of them, and we've, we've touched on some of these before, one of them is too rapid heating at the start. Especially, in, and, and this is possible even with wet pots. If you just, if you have bisque ware and you, you've lo you're loading freshly glazed pot into the kiln, it's possible to blow them up. Um, I've also seen if you've just put in cone packs that haven't either been little holes punched in them or they haven't been allowed to dry thoroughly, you can blow up your cone packs, which is really distressing because then you have nothing to, to monitor the kiln. So you, I, even though I mentioned I want to do a rapid heat up at the beginning, there's such a thing as too rapid a heat up, again, depending on what I've got in the kiln. Um, too much, another possible mistake is too much draft during the heating before the reduction. I'm trying to get the kiln up to reduction, the reduction temperature fairly quickly, but if I actually have too much draft on the chimney, I'm actually wasting heat. Yes, I'm getting a rapid temperature rise, but I'm wasting heat because I, I'm sucking the flame out of the kiln so quickly that I, I'm, I'm wasting a lot of heat. So I, although I mentioned I want you know, fairly oxidizing conditions and I want a rapid heat up, I don't want usually the dampers wide open. I still want to slow the flame down a little bit. So I, I almost never have the dampers wide open. I still want to create a little bit of back pressure to slow the flame down so that I'm basically I'm just not wasting gas. It's possible also during the, um, when I'm trying to get a rapid temperature rise, and this is, this is related to the, this, this draft also, is it's possible to have too much secondary air. If I have any, if you think about it, if I'm pulling in cold air into the kiln, it takes heat to heat up that cold air. So if I have too much secondary air, if the draft is too great, not only is the flame going through the kiln too quickly, but I'm pulling in more cold air than I need, and it takes heat to heat up that cold air. So actually, I might open up the secondary, increase the secondary air to get a temperature rise, and I actually get, might get a temperature drop because I've, I've pulled in more air than I need to burn the gas, and now I've pulled in extra air that just needs to be heated. So I'm wasting heat heating that extra air. So again, I don't just, uh, when, I'm, when I'm opening up a control like that or increasing the, the draft, I'll increase it slowly, a little bit at a time over a few minutes to, to, and watch to see what happens. And finally, I can do the other thing. I can also put in too much gas. I can get to the point where, okay, I want to increase the temperature. So I, I turn up the gas and the temperature drops. And you go like, what? 
I just increased the fuel. How could the temperature drop? Well, if I don't have enough air to burn the gas, then I'm putting in cold gas. And that cold gas still needs to be heated and it absorbs and wastes heat. So unless I increase the air along with the gas, I can actually make the temperature drop by turning up the gas. Okay, and a few, finally, I've got a, well, I've, not finally, but almost finally, I've got a few myths, a couple of things I'm calling myths and questionable procedures. And I've touched on this already. First of all, that a long, one of the ideas is that a long candling or a long preheat is necessary. My recommendation is only for a specific purpose. If you have wet bricks, for instance, if you have a kiln that's not adequately sheltered from the weather and the bricks have actually gotten wet, then yes, you want to do a long, slow preheat to dry out the bricks. Or if you have wet pots. So I'd say when you're doing your preheat or this early, the first stage in heating, the length of time and the speed really depends on what the requirements are. Don't assume and don't assume that you automatically need a long, slow preheat. That can just be a waste of time and a waste of gas. In some cases, it's necessary. It depends on what the conditions are. I mentioned this already. Um, some people think, I've, I've heard people say, well, the, I'm making a lot of soot. That means I'm in great reduction. No, that doesn't mean you're in great reduction. You don't want to make soot unless you're doing carbon trapping. Good, when you're making a lot of soot, that's over-reduction, which means you're not producing a lot, as much carbon monoxide as you want. So, you, you, so a lot of soot production is not good. That's over-reduction. Um, sometimes people say, well, stalling indicates a bad firing procedure or it's, or it's accidental. Keep in mind, stalling is a natural phenomenon. This is a natural occurrence because the kiln is losing heat faster and faster. And it ha it, the thing is, it's interesting, we don't think about it. Stalling happens in electric kilns. Anytime you're heating up anything, it's losing heat faster and faster. But in electric kilns, now that more and more of them have electronic or automatic controllers, the kiln automatically compensates for it and you don't see it. So as the kiln is heating up and it starts to lose heat faster and faster, the controller and the thermocouple are recording that and they, they compensate for it. They put in more heat and they offset the stall. But if you were doing it manually, you would see that electric kilns stall also because it's the fundamental principle of losing heat. And finally, one, one procedure that I've seen some people talk about, it's, they call it cycling. And they'll, they'll, the kiln will go into a stall and they'll say they're going to cycle. They'll come out of reduction and go into a little more oxidation and then back into reduction, back and forth, back and forth a few times, maybe five minutes in oxidation, five minutes reduction. And the, 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 the claim that I've heard is that this helps solve the stalling problem. Personally, I'm not sure of the benefit of that. I'm not sure what it accomplishes because basically to solve a stalling problem, you just need to burn the heat more efficiently. So yes, when you go into the oxidation part of the cycling, you're burning more heat, but then why go back into the reduction? Why not just stay in slightly heavier oxidation and, and burn more fuel and get out of, and pull out of the stall? So I'm just personally, I'm not sure of the benefit of this cycling procedure, but some people swear by it, but I just, I'm just not personally sure. So finally, I have a few suggestions here um, as far as general suggestions for reduction of firing. First of all, use cones to map the temperature. If you, unless you're really familiar with a kiln, um, I, I would put some cone packs at various locations in the kiln to check how the what the temperature profile is in the kiln and use glazes to map the reduction. Use some, some small pieces that, that, that have with glazes on that are sensitive to reducing conditions and you can see, you can also map the reduction in your kiln. Where are the areas where you get good reduction or where are the areas where you get naturally poor reduction? It's very normal for a kiln to have some temperature variation in it and also some variation in the reducing conditions. And you can work with those. You just put certain, kiln, certain pots or certain glazes in those areas, but you need to know where they were. So for instance, we use copper reds or celadon glazes. They're very sensitive to reducing conditions and you can see it in the color and you can judge um, what, how the reducing conditions were. So I'll put cones around the kiln to map temperature and small test pots around the kiln to map the reduction. I really recommend keeping a detailed kilned log or a firing record of your, of your, your firings, especially when you're starting out. Keep, keep an idea, what are the burner settings? What are your pressure settings? What are your damper settings? What are the weather conditions? With a gas kiln, the weather can affect the, the firing. So what, what's the weather like? Is it breezy? Is it, is it raining? Um, 
Check the gas, what's, what gas pressure are you using on the burners? What's your gas consumption? Look at the, 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 the gauge on your gas tank before and after the firing. How much gas did you actually use during the firing? And most importantly, if you're gonna keep these records, what were the results? So that when you look back in the future, you can see whether, okay, this was a disastrous firing and I had all these glazes that, that didn't come out well, and I can look and compare the, the results with the conditions and say, okay, what do I need to do to change that? So the results are an important part of the record, not just the settings on the controls. The other thing I really recommend is during the firing, change only one thing at a time. I've been at firings where people sort of panic, and so something is going wrong. Let's say the kiln stalls, and they'll increase the air, increase the air, glass, close the damper, and, and, you know, and you can't, so you can't tell what's having the effect. So change one thing, and then wait five minutes or 10 minutes and see what the effect is. And I mentioned earlier, the nice thing about a long, one of these long firings, you know, six, eight, 10 hours, 15 hours, you're not gonna ruin the whole firing by making a small change. You can make a change, wait five or 10 minutes, see whether that's the, the correct change, and if not, put it back where it was, and then try something else. And you're not gonna mess up the whole, you can do that a lot of times during the firing, and you'll slow down the firing, but you won't really mess up anything. So change one thing at a time. Also, I've, uh, I've seen this a lot of community firings, and I taught at a local college for a number of years in the master's program in our area here. And when you're learning to fire a kiln, don't just go and start the kiln and then go sit down. I mean, maybe I may carry it to excess, as some of my, my friends here say, because um, I never sit down during the firing. But keep, but keep checking the kiln. List, look at the temperature. Have a, look, if you have a pyrometer, look at the pyrometer. Listen to the burner noise. After a while, you'll, you'll recognize that there's a certain noise that the burners make. Are the burners still making that noise? Or are they making some other noise that maybe indicates maybe they're, not, they're malfunctioning? Look at the flames going into the kiln. Look, keep, keep your eye on the kiln. Don't just, the kiln is not gonna babysit and take care of itself. So, and there may be a need to make constant adjustments to the damper, to the flame, especially, let's say, during reduction. So keep an eye on it. Don't just go sit down and expect to wake up at the end of the firing and have great results. And finally, one last comment is, and I alluded to this earlier, the really, the, if you really want to get an indication of your efficiency, and let's say you have a friend that has a gas kiln and you're in a, you're in a heated competition to decide who has the most efficient kiln, a really good way to determine efficiency is at the end of a firing, weigh the pots that you've fired and determine how much fuel you've used and work it out, work out the thing like how much fuel per pound of work did it take you to fire your work? And that's the, best, that's the best measure of efficiency because you don't care about how big the kiln is, the size of the kiln, the bricks, the, the, anything else. What you really care about is how much fuel did it take you to fire the work? So it, it might be gallons of propane, it might be cubic feet of natural gas, it might be, in other cases, cords of wood or kilowatt hours of electricity. How much energy did it take to fire the work? And if you can express that as, as fuel per pound of pots, that will give you a number that you can compare with other kilns, regardless of the design or the, any other details about the other kilns. So finally, what I wanted to put up here was I wanted to show you an example of our firing curve that we got. This is the, 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 the curve that we plotted from the data from our very first test firing of our new kiln. And frankly, it's a very nice looking curve. So we plotted, we started a little, about a little after 8.30 in the morning, and we finished a little after midnight, which is not surprising for this kind of a kiln. This is a soda kiln with all dense fire brick. So there's a lot of heat that goes, as I mentioned, the efficiency of the kiln. There's a lot of heat that goes into heating the bricks and the structure and the shelves themselves, forgetting the work. So it's not surprising that it takes this long, but this shows the different stages. So here's our initial heat up, up to around 1,000. We were going, it turned out we were going about 390 degrees Fahrenheit per hour. That's pretty fast. But I didn't see any reason to go slower because the pots were dry, the kiln, the bricks were dry, and as it turns out, we didn't have any problems that resulted from this. No pots blew up, nothing happened. So this was fine. And then we, then naturally, as we get hotter, the heating rate slows down. I don't want to just blow gas through there, so I turned it up a little bit to increase, but, but we're naturally going to heat more slowly because we're losing heat more slowly. So at this point, we were going about 148 degrees an hour, and we finally reached cone 012, and we went into reduction, heavy reduction. And if you notice, the curve levels off. It actually drops slightly, but this is pretty good. So we, we were able to go into good heavy reduction while basically maintaining temperature. And we held reduction for about an hour. That's about an hour between those marks. 
And then, we, then we, we, we went out of reduction and increased the temperature again. Initially, we were going about 70 degrees an hour. And now at this point, I'm trying to heat it up, frankly, as fast as I can, but I can only heat it up so quickly because I'm losing heat quickly. And as we're getting hotter and hotter at this point, we can only heat it up to about 50 degrees an hour, which is still a good rate, but that's about as quickly as we could heat this particular kiln until we reach the end point. But frankly, this is a very nice looking curve. Um, we've got a steady increase the whole way, and, and this, the shape of the curve, this is a natural shape that you get. Even if I was trying to heat it as quickly as possible, I would generate the same shape. A rapid heating and the curve would naturally slow down as they get to higher temperatures because it's heating faster and faster. Okay? If you enjoyed the presentation, please like it and subscribe to our channel and share it with your friends and other potters. This really helps our videos get found on YouTube. Also, if you have any suggestions for future presentations, please let us know. We're open to suggestions. Also, check out our website, www.hfclay.com. We really want to thank our patrons for supporting our educational efforts, such as these presentations. If you'd like to help us with, these, with this work, consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com and look for the Potter's Roundtable. The next topic in our series will be ash glazes. That will be our February discussion topic. And thank you for visiting with us today. The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on The Potter's Roundtable. <laughs>